It's number, page number 1085 in your pew Bibles. So following on from the place where Jesus has said, he's told these things to the disciples so that they might have peace in this world because he's overcome the world. And at verse 1 in chapter 17, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. The glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now. But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved the world before the creation of the world. So you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. 
I have made you known to them in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Amen. This is God's word. Evening. You have your Bibles with you. Let's keep them open to John chapter 17. Thank you, Rodney, for uh, not stealing thunder. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would sanctify us by the truth, knowing that your word is truth. Indeed, as we have just been singing, speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth filled with your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it often, it's often in moments where death is near us, uh, when we figure out what is most important to us. Um, we know we've uh, recently uh, had on our TVs uh, some televised memorial events from the September 11th attacks and so on, and, and various documentaries that surround that. And one of the things that uh, I saw one time flicking through the channels was this account of uh, the, the last words and the last deeds of those who were... Uh, facing peril, really. Uh, so whether they were on a plane about to crash or in the towers uh, themselves, there were various things that they chose to do and chose to say. And for many of these people, it was a case of trying to pick up their phones and to contact loved ones, to send messages of love and messages of assurance and all sorts of things. And that quite a startling thing even to watch and to hear because even in those few moments uh, even with some people leaving answer phone messages conscious of the fact that there is a one minute limit on this answer phone that they're leaving their message on and I wonder if we only had one minute or if we only had three minutes who would we phone who would we contact what would we say what would we do interesting to think about, given that it's often in those moments where death is near us that we figure out what matters to us most. I think we see that in John's gospel. I think we see that in the whole section from John chapter 13 to John chapter 17, where Jesus has uh, retreated with his disciples into this upper room to show them, remember what John 13 said, to show them the full extent of his love, okay? And he reassures them, he tells them, he gives them some instructions as to what he wants them to do, and he shows them what they should do by washing their feet. He gives them assurance that the Holy Spirit is coming, and he encourages them to remain in him and stand strong in him, even at the prospect of the world's hatred. We're seeing some of Christ's deepest concerns, but interestingly, before they walk out of this room, before they walk into the well, before Jesus walks to the kiss of his betrayer and the following hours of mock trials and crucifixion and death, Jesus chooses to utter words to his heavenly father and shows us some of his deepest concerns. And here's the two things I want us to think through tonight. Two things that I, that I think that we see here. Number one, Christ's 
first concern for the glory of God, and number two, Christ's second concern for the mission of the church. So let's look at number one first of all. Christ's first concern is for the glory of God. Jesus wants the Father to be glorified through the completion of his mission, Jesus' mission. I think this is what we see in verses 1 to 5, where there's two subpoints in here, Christ's motivation and Christ's mission. First of all, Christ's motivation. The only thing that Jesus is seeking in these uh, final hours of his life is, the, well, really the very thing that he has been seeking throughout the whole of his life, the glory of the Father. Verse 1 says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. He's seeking the Father's glory. Now to that, you, as, as you read that, you might just think, well, wait a minute. I thought you said he is praying for God to be glorified. Isn't, isn't he just praying that he will be glorified as well? Well, yes, he is. And what are we to make of that? What are we to make of that in light of the fact that Isaiah 42 tells us that God will not give his glory to another? What then does it mean for Jesus Christ to turn around and say, Father, glorify your Son? How do we expect to explain that apart from concluding that Jesus Christ is indeed who he has claimed to be, God in the flesh? You see, in John's gospel, Christ has made many claims and he has performed many works through which he has declared I am God in the flesh and here in verses 1 to 5 I think we have two clear affirmations of Jesus that he is indeed God in the flesh number one by asking the father to glorify him that's quite a request number two by claiming to have existed before the creation of the world did you see that in verse 5, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In other words, I am, I am not created. <laughs> I am an uncreated being, is essentially what Jesus Christ is saying here. He is, do, he is doing nothing here apart from claiming equality with Almighty God. And that's quite a claim. But he's doing it rightfully so. But his claim all the way through John's gospel is that he has been sent by the Father into the world. That he is indeed the Word who, and as we saw in John chapter 1, the Word who is God. Who came from the Father full of grace and truth to proclaim God's glorious redemption to a people lost in their sin. And this is the, he, this is the focus of his mission. The very motivation that he has is to glorify God, even by praying, glorify your son. It's the same thing. It's glorify your name, Father, and glorify your son. But it highlights for us, secondly, the, the mission. This is where Jesus' uh, glory and God's glory is most magnified for us, most put on display. You see, at the heart of God's plan to save a lost people is the death of Christ on the cross. This is where he is glorified. This is Christ's mission, to save sinners. Verse 1 has already reminded us where we're headed. The time has come, or the hour has come, as some translations have it. This time or hour is mentioned again and again in John's gospel. And in John, it's always a reference to the cross. John never lets us forget that that's where Jesus is headed. The mission of Christ will certainly 
take him to glory. He will return to the Father, but only through the cross. And that was always the eternal plan. And verse 2 tells us exactly what purpose lay behind that cross. So it gives us, uh, if you like, the very mission of Jesus, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. I wonder what you think of this world. I wonder how many people we know, if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, how alive do you feel? I wonder what we think about people in our city and across the nations. How alive do people think they are? Well, many think they are very alive. All that they need is a pulse. All they need is a beating heart and lungs that inflate and deflate and just keep on doing that. But in truth, we're, we're more like a horror movie in this world, really. Are, there, are, there are zombies everywhere, if you like. And what I mean, let me just clarify this. What I mean is this. There are people moving around who have the appearance of life and thinking they're alive, but in fact are spiritually dead. And in fact, with that, more dead than they could ever imagine. Separated from God, that is, and under his just judgment. And what God the Father does is sends God the Son into the world and gives him this mission to give spiritual life to spiritually dead people. And what's the nature of this life? It's there for us again in verse 3. It's firstly eternal, secondly relational. This is eternal life that they know. I don't think the word may should be in there. This is defining what eternal life is. This is eternal life. Eternal life is not that you may know God. Eternal life is that you know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's fundamentally the mission of Christ and the very nature and purpose of that mission, what that looks like. Again, affirming for us that which we have seen in John 1 and all the way through, it's a familiar thread. Jesus came to make the only true God known and that through himself. So he is the only way to God, not a popular belief, not a popular teaching, but true nonetheless. One of the things that I find absolutely magnificent about these opening five verses is just the certainty of the mission. I mean, look at what Jesus says in verse four as well. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And immediately you think, well, wait a minute. You were saying that at the very heart of this plan of God and this eternal purpose of God is a cross. I mean, we're still a few hours from that to say the least, but how can you speak like that? Jesus is speaking as if the event is already complete and the work is already done. We're not in chapter 19 yet. (laughs) But he can say this because it is at the heart of the Son to be perfectly obedient to the Father who will lead him to Calvary and indeed on that cross uh, as Isaiah 53 lay on him the iniquity of who? us all that's why he can speak with such certainty because he loves the father so much he will be perfectly obedient even to death on a cross as Philippians 2 says incredible isn't it incredible in those opening five verses we would do well to stay there for another five hours but we we must move on but before we do think through this what is then our primary concern in life what's your primary concern whether in life or in death actually what comes top of the list when you're waking up in the morning what 
when all these things that you have to do in the day rush upon you, what's first there? What's, what's the thing you bags first and like to think through? What are you motivated for? What are you living your life for? What are the things that you desire most? And what are the things that you spend your time and your money on most? Generally, these things will, answering these questions will show up truly what you're living for. But Jesus sets us an example here which tells us that our lives are all about living for God's glory and God's glory alone and that indeed to be the primary thing. Are our lives being lived for God's glory? Do we realize indeed that we are made by him and made by him to live for him and that we are not autonomous? That our lives are not about seeking our own glory but are about living for him my brother-in-law used to sell Mercedes cars for a living his job was to lead people to the cars demonstrate their excellence answer questions in relation to the specification of the car and then just step out of the way and let people marvel at these Mercedes cars and then come to a decision yes or no but can you imagine my brother-in-law when he worked for them getting to this point where he began to exalt himself above, above the task who started to live for his own glory rather than Mr. Mercedes' glory? What if he thought people were coming to see him rather than see the cars? What if, what if a customer said, my, that SL55 Coupe is very nice? And he said, why, thank you. As if taking the credit what if he didn't even one day decide he decided he wasn't even going to bother showing people the cars he was just going to sit down and tell people about himself and and be all self-focused in that regard you would think it would be rather ridiculous wouldn't you and his supervisor would certainly have been having a conversation with him saying hey remember this this isn't all about you okay in the very same way, perhaps we may be challenged tonight to think through, even by the example that Jesus sets for us in his prayer. Listen, this life, this isn't all about you. You're not called to live for your own glory. You're not called to live for your own gratification. You're called to live for God's glory, knowing that he will give us all good things and bless us immeasurably in ways that we could never achieve or earn or seek out in our own efforts. Jesus' first concern is for the glory of God, and I pray that indeed it would be ours. But Christ's second concern is for the mission of the church. You see, Jesus wants his followers to be sanctified, set apart for the completion of the church's mission. So Jesus has a mission, and he has spoken of its completion with such certainty. Indeed, we know this side of the cross that, it, that he was true to his word Again, another testimony of his godness, of being uh, almighty gods. But as his prayer progresses, Jesus moves immediately to identify who he's actually praying for next. And he does that in verse 9. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are you, yours. Who are they? Well, verses 6 to 12 give us a rundown of who they are. Verses 6 and 8 tell us people who know the Father through the Son, okay? 
uh, verses 7 and 9 also tells people who have heard, obeyed, and accepted God's word, that is, the gospel. And the second part of verse 8 tells us people who believe that the Son is sent from the Father. In other words, Jesus confirms that these people who believe this, that they are truly his people. They have belonged to the Father in eternity and belong to him now. Indeed, it's almost like Jesus is. They have been given to Jesus as a love gift to him. And Jesus, in this prayer, in this upper room, are, are, is offering the people of God in a sense, back to the Father, offering that kind of mutual love and the giving of the gift. I've looked after them here. I've kept them. I've protected them here. Now, Father, keep them as I go from this place. And these disciples, the implication of this is really clear. These disciples are a tangible expression of the completion, the fuller completion of Christ's work because he has indeed given them a commission and will go, will go on to do so. But he does so even in his prayer. And these people only exist because of the work that Christ has done. They've spent a considerable amount of time with Christ and for great benefit. Our ministry apprentices here spend one or two years with us in ministry training and they, they get contact with each of the pastors but never to the extent that the disciples really got with Jesus Christ when he was on this earth our apprentices don't follow us around everywhere we go um, but the aim is essentially the same to train up gospel workers for the harvest field that's what we're seeking to do through our ministry apprenticeship program that's what indeed Jesus was doing with this fledgling church if you like how did he do that? How did he make them into disciple-making disciples? Well, he taught them the truth about God. And he modeled what it is to live a holy life and instilled in them the necessity and the urgency of being gospel-centered and sharing the gospel even in a world that may hate them and hold some danger. And for three years, I don't know, they've been essentially downloading as much of heaven's software as they possibly could in their time in contact with Jesus Christ, enabling them to perform the tasks that they are called to do. But here is Christ's concern for his disciples as he utters it in his prayer to the Father in verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. So what does he do with this concern? He prays for them. And how incredible for these men to be an earshot of the Son of God at this point as he talks with and communes with the Eternal Father. That's remarkable. How amazing that must have been to hear God the Son speaking to God the Father. And how encouraging that must have been to them maybe in their fearfulness or in their timidity for what may lie ahead. And how encouraging even for us to see that those who will believe through the preaching of the gospel that, that has its epicenter really in this upper room are prayed for too. We are prayed for too within this prayer in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. And let me ask this question. What difference will it make to our pursuit of godliness what difference will it make to our evangelism adventures knowing that the Son of God has lifted us up in prayer 
to God the Father. And indeed, as Rodney tried to steal earlier on, certainly continues on that intercessory work for us before the throne of God. Hebrews 7.25, he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's praying for us. Isn't that incredible? 1 John 2 verse 1 tells us that he is our heavenly advocate pleading our case before the Father. That even when we sin, he speaks to our defense. For when, our se- when we sin, perhaps the wrath of the Father roused and the reminder is again, Father, Liam Garvey, these guys here in Charlotte Chapel, they're banking on me. They have trusted in my blood and that wrath is averted and we know grace and to what it is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Yet he not only prays for our forgiveness and pleads for our souls in that way, he pleads for our mission. He pleads for us and for the accomplishing of the task that he has given to us, his church. And I wonder if we grasp the magnitude of that and the significance of that. And just as it's a strengthening thing to realize that even though our evangelism is hard and we are helped by the presence of the Holy Spirit who speaks through us, we are helped by remembering the Son of, the, the, the Son of God who intercedes for us before the Father. It was McShane who said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference, McShane says. He is praying for me. So with that in mind, four quick things that tells us what Christ is praying for his church and how they reveal even something of his, the vision for the church and indeed how we should seek to be encouraged in pursuing these things with all of our heart. First of all, Jesus prays for the doctrinal purity of the church. So the first concern Jesus has is that it will remain uh, loyal to the truth that he has revealed. In light of the fact, of course, there are two formidable foes who will really push believers and push the church to uh, depart from the truth. We have, of course, verse 15, the world, uh, chapter 15 is told us about the world that hates uh, the disciples and certainly the, the devil, as it says in verse 15 of this chapter, who also targets them. But verse 11b tells us something very interesting. Jesus prays, protect them by the power of your name. Now, perhaps a better translation of that is keep them not by the power of, but in your name, which you have given us. In your name. Now, in most cases, when the Bible speaks of a name, for example, the name of the Lord, it refers generally to the collective characteristics of God. It's who he is as a whole. Uh, so John 20, 31 is our kind of interpretative key to John's gospel. It says that by believing in Jesus, you may have life in his name. Now, it's not that by believing that he was called Jesus that we're saved, but it's by believing everything that is tied up with the name Jesus and what he has achieved. But this basically means that in effect, Jesus has prayed, I have revealed the truth about God to the church. And now, Father, protect them from error. Keep them in that revealed truth that you have given through me. Keep them in that truth. Keep them in my name. Keep them in what I have revealed about the fullness of your character. Okay? And how current is this for us? We live in a time when even in serious church decline, 
Many are arguing over the causes and what needs to be done to preserve our church. Well, some say we've lost our sense of community, but in seeking unity, can do so even at the expense of truth. Others say we've lost the doctrinal clarity of the faith and are so preoccupied with the truth that the church has lost the need for being distinct and being holy. Well, the truth is they are both important and neither should be lost. The question practically for us as a church is, or for us as individuals as well, primarily as a church, how do we preserve then this doctrinal clarity and the doctrinal purity of the church? Even for us in Charlotte Chapel. After all, it's said that we're only ever one generation away from doctrinal slippage or heresy. What do we do? Well, we allow ourselves to be sanctified by the truth, don't we? Verse 17, sanctify them, set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. How do we do that? How do we meditate on this gospel truth that Jesus is speaking about? How do we reflect on his words that he has given us? Well, we open our Bibles day by day. We preach God's word from this pulpit week by week. We keep the main things the main thing, and we refuse to make secondary or tertiary issues primary issues. Indeed, we join the church, don't we? It's part of our membership to be uh, protecting. It's part of the membership's responsibility to be protecting the doctrinal purity of the church. You can be sure if I said something that was doctrinally impure, you would have something to say about it. And I could not ignore you. We protect and preserve this revelation of God, this, the very name, the character of God that has been revealed to us and proclaimed to us by Jesus by being sanctified by the truth. That's one of his concerns. Another concern that is mentioned is Jesus' prayer for the mission of the church. We see this in verse 18. So, so important. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Just as Jesus is about to depart, this in, uh, so his, out of the world, so his followers are to go into the world. And this really as a reflection of his mission. In many respects, uh, a continuance of his mission. And we should understand this. The entire mission of Jesus in the world is really the mission of the Father. The Father has sent the Son. The Son has been sent by the Father. We see this in his prayer. And the son we've seen throughout John's gospel is given words to say by the father, does only what the father does, for example. So the son's mission is the father's mission. And now we see that the church's mission is the son's mission. We're caught up in the purposes of God here. We are fulfilling what God has called us to do by preaching this gospel to where? To where? The nations. To the nations. And one of the things I think that's implied in here by this prayer is that the disciples who live in the world still actually need to be sent into it. We're not called to be in a Christian ghetto, to be a social club with an elite membership. We are to be in the world, but still sanctified, set apart from the world in holiness and faith, but still in that world, preaching the gospel and sharing it. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, sums it up well. He says... God does not want us in quarantine, 
but neither does he want us, want us infected by the contagions of the world either. And here's another problem that Christians throughout the ages have struggled with, oscillating between withdrawing from the world and conforming to the world. But according to Christ's prayer, our calling is to stay in the world while all the while not conforming to the world's standards. Instead, just recognizing that our mission is stated, proclaimed, if you like, in bold italics and underlined when we live together on mission, proclaiming the same word that we have been sanctified by, declaring with one voice the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus looks down through the ages and prays even for the sustained unity of the church. And that's the third thing, verse 20 to 23. Uh, I'll read one of these verses. I pray that all of them may be one, he says. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may, you also, may they also be in us so that the world will know that you sent me. See how our togetherness is tied to what the world knows and learns about Jesus Christ. It's about a unity with the apostles' teaching. And it's about a unity with the Father and the Son. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What amazing ways that we have to tell the world about news in our lives through Twitter, through Facebook. Indeed, I was reflecting on something, someone tweeted during the week that in relation to Steve Jobs' death, the the testimony to this man's impact on the world is that most people will know of his passing through one of the devices that he has created. Well, you know, there is an even better communicative tool in this world than the iPod or the iPhone or anything else beginning with I. It is the church. And how lost people can hear of this glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ through the very people he created. Precious thought. It's why we should always speak out to pursue unity together. To be agreeing in gospel partnership on the central things and defending them to the death. last thing very quickly Jesus prays for the completion of the mission of the church verse 24 father I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world how amazing to read that in this prayer that Christ is not content just for the church to retain doctrinal purity to carry out this mission that he has given and to do so in unity Christ is not content until the saints his people are truly happy in his arms in eternity isn't that a glorious thought this prayer which he is uttering on earth is for us to know the completion of the mission that he has called us to and what kind of confidence does it give you the fact that even in verses 1 to 5, Jesus has prayed for the completion of his mission, even without it taking place yet? 
do we have confidence then in our ability to retain doctrinal purity, in our attempts to share the gospel, in our commission indeed to share the gospel with other people, not just in Edinburgh, but to the nations, and to do so with one voice proclaiming Jesus is Lord, knowing one day we will be with him. Christ is praying these things for us. What kind of difference will that make to our evangelism? What kind of difference will it make to the evangelism adventures we're seeking to have, whatever they may be in the workplace this week? What kind of difference will this make knowing that we are called to live for his glory and that that was Jesus' primary concern and that we are to live as a part of and in partnership with everyone else in his church to seek to glorify his name abroad. May we be strengthened. May we be bolstered by these great truths and by the truth that Christ has prayed for us and presently still prays for us. Be bold and speak out for him this week.